go back to the period of, you know, the 1870s and 1880s. And what was going on? Well, we see Europe was out there uh, in terms of its colonial enterprise, imperialism, carving up Africa, much of South Asia and Southeast Asia. And there was, one might even call it, a need to somehow legitimize or rationalize what right do Europeans, Northern Europeans in particular, have to subject these people or subjugate these people of color. And so uh, we see this, the beginning of what would emerge as the quasi-science of race. Welcome to A History of Xenophobia, from the gold mines to the rise of the far right today. My name is Ariel Glynn, and I'm the host of this History Hope podcast series. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhub.ie. William Brustein is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of History at West Virginia University. Until recently, he was the Vice President for Global Strategies and International Affairs and Eberly Family Distinguished Professor of History. He has published widely in the areas of political extremism and ethnic, religious and racial prejudice, as well as on university education more generally. He's the author of numerous books and articles, including the prize-winning The Logic of Evil, The Social Origins of the Nazi Party, 1925-1933 to with Yale University Press and The Socialism of Fools, Leftist Origins of Modern Antisemitism with Cambridge University Press. His work on antisemitism will be central to the podcast today. His monograph, Roots of Hate, Antisemitism in Europe Before the Holocaust, also published at Cambridge, is a brilliant overview of antisemitism in Europe in the decades leading up to the Holocaust. What distinguishes the book is its comparative lens. It looks at antisemitism in Germany, Romania, France, Italy and Great Britain in depth, as you'll hear, and asks whether and how antisemitism varied in content and intensity across societies. In the preface to Roots of Hate, you write that you could never quite fathom how people of the Jewish faith had remained the objects of such intense scorn in Western societies for close to 2,000 years. So can you tell listeners why Jews experienced such scorn before the 1870s? So the 1870s where a lot of your research uh, starts off, but you, you do provide an extensive kind of background filling in kind of the period uh, before that. I think a lot has to do with the fact that uh, Judaism and Christianity are sibling religions and that um, in, in the early years, going back 2000 years ago, um, the fact that Jews were held responsible for, th- for the death of Christ, uh, who the Christians see as the Messiah, um, and that both religions um, early on were competing for followers. And in so doing, uh, it's important uh, to try to differentiate themselves and to cast the other one in a negative light. And we see, and it was done both by uh, Jews as well as by Christians going back uh, in the early days after the death of Christ. And so um, 
the fact that the Christians were trying to make the case that they were the ones now who really would take the covenant that God gave to Abraham rather than the Jews and that the Jews represented uh, the past and Christians represent the future. And so as time went on, more and more, each looked for reasons to uh, denigrate the other. And the fact that the Romans defeating uh, Jewish uprisings twice after the death of Christ uh, was used by Christians early on to say, well, God has lost favor, uh, or the Jews have lost favor with God, and therefore uh, they are, are to be seen as pariahs, as outcasts. So we get these early uh, um, arguments, and by the time against the Jews in, in Europe, in Christian Europe, but by the time that um, the Roman Empire t- uh, takes on Christianity as its uh, uh, principal religion, uh, the steps are put in place that Jews are to be treated not like people of other faith, but as in a special category as pariahs and to be out there so that they can be pointed to as the as examples of the way not to go. And that over centuries, there would be more and more allegations against the Jews for causing things, as we would say, the... Um, the Black Plague, uh, the bubonic plague, uh, for uh, being Satan, for uh, uh, all these other various crimes. And one of the most deadly ones was the blood ritual, which accused the Jews of uh, killing young Christian uh, children to use their blood uh, for the making of matzah during Passover. And again, this was symbolic of the Jews responsible for the crucifixion of Christ uh, in terms of using this blood uh, analogy. So this would develop uh, centuries and centuries. And then by the time of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, uh, when the church became aware of that the Jews were uh, using the Talmud, uh, which in many ways the Christian church saw as very critical of Christianity, opposition to Judaism heightened. And then we start seeing the expulsions uh, from England, from Germany, from France uh, during the uh, higher Middle Ages. So I could go on and on, but this starts mainly because of the early competition and the closeness between these two religions and each trying to carve out a place for itself. Then, you know, your study focuses on the period roughly from the 1870s till, till just before the Holocaust. Why did you focus on this time period in particular? It, there's a period right before the 1870s, really from the time of the French Revolution to the 1870s, when we see a greater toleration and acceptance of Jews in Europe. Jews are freed from the ghettos. They're able to compete for positions and the professions, uh, opportunities open up. And people thought of this as, uh, you know, progressively as a period of toleration. It's in the 1870s that we begin to see the rise of these anti-Semitic movements uh, throughout uh, Europe. The term anti-Semitism first comes into use. Uh, it's William Marr, 
and Germany is credited with this term, but you see the beginnings of um, political movements at this time, uh, and anti-Semitism really takes on a new character. It's no longer simply just the religious argument against the Jews, the economic argument. We see the beginnings of the racial argument and the political trope, uh, anti-Semitic trope. So that's why this period of 1870s is important. You know, there there are periods between 1870 and really uh, 1939 when there's, you know, uh, variation in terms spatially and uh, temporally with respect to anti-Semitism. But nevertheless, this is a heightened period. And this is one of the beauties of your book in the sense that it's comparative, you know, that it doesn't just focus on one country, for instance, in Germany, where there's been so much work on. But as you mentioned, there's a this spatial and temporal variation to try and see patterns that are there, try to highlight the um, the uniqueness of certain countries are, are test that, you know, you mentioned in your book several times this idea of the Sonderweg, that the, the exceptionalism of uh, of Germany, um, whereas you, you're able to show that Romania is, is often uh, a place where there's huge anti-Semitism as well during the same period, sometimes uh, more so than in uh, Germany. You, you touched on it there in passing, you mentioned, you know, nationalism and, and science, how were these developments influencing anti-Semitism? Well, again, let's go back to the period of, you know, the 1870s and 1880s and think in terms of the European powers and the United States. And what was going on? Well, we see Europe was out there uh, in terms of its colonial enterprise, imperialism, carving up Africa, carving up uh, much of South Asia and Southeast Asia. And there was, one might even call it, a need to somehow legitimize or rationalize what right do Europeans, Northern Europeans in particular, have to subject these people or subjugate these people of color in particular to imperialism and to colonialism. And so uh, we see this, the beginning of what would emerge as the quasi-science of race, which I'll get into in a second. In the United States, let's not forget America. This is again, by the late 1880s, early 1890s, the advent of Jim Crow. And so trying to find rationale for why whites in America have uh, the responsibility or the obligation to create these separate but equal, which we knew were very uh, unequal, uh, practices and, and policies and laws in the United States. So it's, the context is very important here. And so it is at this time that we see the emergence of modern anthropology with a hierarchy of um, ethnic groups. Um, we see biological Darwinism coming to the, the fore. And again, Dar I'm not a, alleging in any way that Darwin was an anti-Semite, but it's how his work is appropriated and you get survival of the fittest, uh, the no, that notion, as well as that races or groups that tend to evolve uh, uh, in a way to, to, to a changing environment are more likely to survive and, and dominate. And so now this is being applied to ethnic groups. And then we also get the science of eugenics, which was being used first for animal husbandry and 
horticulture, but the fact here is that about mixing and how if you're going to have the strongest and 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 most pure uh, breed, that you have to make sure that you mate the the best of the the livestock, and, and, and if you mix types, then you get impure uh, outcomes. And so you get Galton's eugenics is now being merged with this biological Darwinism and uh, the modern anthropology to create this science of race where races are now arrayed in order of their superiority. And in this hierarchy, and they look at such things as craniology, uh, looking at the skull type, uh, and, and stating that certain skull types are indicative of a higher uh, of a higher position on this hierarchy, and so with this new science of race, governments now can make sense to their populations of why uh, certain ethnic groups, certain races, uh, should be uh, subjugated, and um, at the same time, you get this degree that a nation has to remain pure in terms of its blood. And so what's key here for anti-Semitism, Ariel, is that before the new science of race is being used and the racial and anti-Semitic trope is going to be utilized, one could argue, well, all the Jews have to do to resolve the so-called Jewish question, the place of Jews in, in society, is to convert. Just accept Christ as the Messiah, convert to Christianity, the problem goes away. But when you begin to get a racial argument, you can't, conversion doesn't do it anymore. It's your blood. It's something that you are, no matter what you do or what you say, you're Jewish. And therefore, conversion is no longer the answer for racial anti-Semites. It becomes either some kind of marginalization, expulsion, eventually extermination. So it's it's frightening even just to hear it uh, outlined in such clear terms and also kind of ironic that this happens at the same time as there, as Europeans are distinguishing themselves from Africans or from people in Asia, you know, along the lines of colonialism that they're also turning inward towards and trying to distinguish between groups in their territory, for instance. Um, one of the kind of major arguments that comes out again in, in the literature in um, talking about the rise of the far right today is uh, this theory of modernization, that people are angry about what's going on today, that let's say family values are going, that globalization has led to more competition from external parties and then competition within from immigrants coming as well. But modernization is always sometimes, also sometimes put forward to explain the rise in anti-Semitism in, in the period that you look at. And what are your views on this? And maybe you can explain how this theory works for uh, the a different period. As, as I had mentioned previously, after the French Revolution and in the period when Jews were gaining their civil rights throughout Europe, uh, there and, and we it, the economies were beginning to industrialize. That Jews, many of them, seemed to do quite well in terms of rising in the professions, and those groups that 
that perceived that they were falling behind um, looked at to understand who's responsible for this, what's what's happening, and they looked at that it was the modernization, the fact that economies were now becoming more national economies rather than just local, that uh, certain groups were um, gaining wealth and status while others were falling behind. And so they looked to blame this on someone. And so because of the multifaceted nature of anti-Semitism and the fact that you could point to so many cases of Jews succeeding, I mean, in terms of it was easy to say, oh my God, look at these Rothschilds, or look at the Pereira family, or look at the Strausses, uh, these families who a hundred years before were just impoverished, and now they're, you know, owning these major estates, they're playing key roles in ownership of the railroads, they're uh, in the banking industry, and so people are saying, boy, it's because of the Jews that my situation is dire, and therefore, this non-Jews are losing out to the Jews um, due to this process of modernization. So if we could just push the clock back and go back to a more pastoral, rural times, uh, then we would feel that our place, that is the place of these losers in the process of modernization, where we would regain the footing that we once held. And so this was the modernization argument. And um, the problems I have with it, and again, I think it has certain uh, salience. There's no question here. But it's when you try to explain temporal and spatial variation there. Well, modernization was occurring as well in Italy, but, you know, the Italian non-Jewish population didn't turn to the Jews or even other groups then to blame for the fact that, you know, non-Jews were not gaining in a way that Jews were. Uh, how would modernization then explain temporal variation? Because what we do see in the data are clear, and I, I do hope that people will get a copy of The Roots of Hate and see the empirical evidence that we present here that um, there are periods between particularly 1879 and 1939 when there are much lower levels of anti-Semitism. So how would a process of modernization account for that temporal variation as well when you look at different countries, the fact that if modernization is occurring and but why is it higher in some countries and not in, that is anti-Semitism and not in others? So that was my principal problem. When you do comparative analysis, when you look at it in terms of spatial variation and temporal variation, the model, the explanation of modernization begins to lose some of its uh, uh, salience. Do you make a similar argument with regard to the scapegoat theory? You know, that it also is linked, you know, in the sense that people get angry at their circumstances, they're looking for someone to blame, someone usually that maybe finds it hard to defend themselves um, and th that they, they focus on these people. But as you say, this wasn't consistent throughout this period. So in, let's say, the 14 years before the First World War, it, although this is a time of modernization, you see actually a drop-off in anti-Semitism compared to the late 19th century. Again, I, I think 
people will look for scapegoats. I, I think that's a given, okay? When they confront economic misfortune or other forms of misfortune. Um, when the French uh, lost the in the Franco-Prussian War, and that came as such a shock to France in 1871, obviously they looked to scapegoats. And, um, and I know and the Jews played a role in that, and that led up to the Dreyfus Ver in the 1890s in France. But then you take a country like um, Italy. Italy suffered economic crises in this period. Their, their colonial efforts uh, met with disaster uh, in a number of places, first in, in, in Libya and uh, other parts of Africa. And, but they didn't turn on the Jews. The Jews, why not? I mean, and so the question is, um, yes, scapegoats are looked for, but in the cases we see with respect to Europe and the different European countries, in some cases, yes, they turned to Jews, but in other cases, they didn't. So the scapegoat theory that would say that Jews would be the target falls flat when you look again at it comparatively. You look at different societies. So you mentioned earlier Jim Crow in the United States, and you emphasized how the racial dimension is so um, central to that um, xenophobia or racism, antagonism. Um, but you point out in your book that anti-Semitism is, much, is very multifaceted. Can you outline the, the, the four kind of features or strains of anti-Semitism that you identify? The argument I was making is that when you look at the, the pantheon of, of prejudice, of, of hate, whether you're looking at case of in of in the United States or or in Great Britain at a certain time, the prejudice against Irish Catholics, or you look at the case of blacks in the United States or Chinese in Indonesia, you you typically would find that maybe the arguments were based on a racial uh, narrative, or it might just be based on an economic, or in the case of the Irish, it might be based on religion. But what distinguishes anti-Semitism is it's so multidimensional that Jews could be seen in terms of a threat based on their religion because they refused to accept Christ. And later on, and we'll talk about this a little later with the left, the left picking up on the Enlightenment critique of Judaism as being anti-progressive. And so there was that religious argument. Then the economic argument that Jews could be accused of being um, avaricious, that they uh, worship materialism, that um, the reason why people were losing their jobs and why, let's say, the wine industry in southern France during the time of Phylloxera, the last quarter of the 19th century, uh, why that uh, collapsed was because of uh, Rothschild's control of the wine markets and the fact that though Jews were in no way uh, the dominant majority of, let's say, major financial bankers at the time, but the fact that some prominent Jewish names like Rothschilds could be pointed to uh, made the case that, oh, maybe our economic woes are due to uh, the Jewish control of the economic levers of society. So you had the economic argument. We talked a little bit about the racial argument, that what was unique in the way that the racial argument was going to be used against the Jews starting in the last quarter of the 19th century, was not only that Jews were an inferior race, 
compared to, let's say, Aryans or Nordic, but they were a dangerous race. When you look at the works of uh, Edward Drummond and La France Juive or or Wilhelm Marr in his the, the Jews' victory over the Germandom, um, all of them are saying that it's not only that Jews are inferior, but they are dangerous. They are dangerous and they are pitted in this uh, life struggle, life and death struggle against the Aryans. And so you get this racial argument being used against the Jews. And then the perhaps the argument that would become most dangerous after the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, and with the emergence of the notorious protocols of the elders of Zion, uh, was that the Jews are behind these revolutionary subversive movements that are pitted to overthrow the Christian social order, and that the Jews are behind Marxism, communism, Bolshevism, and that this is it's atheistic and it's an attack on the Christian social order. So you get all four of these. So then you, Ariel, you look at how Hitler and others were able to, at the same time, say that Jews are major capitalists in causing our problems, but they're also communists who are trying to um, uh, destroy nationalism and to uh, create this class of society and to seize the means of production. So they could be used simultaneously. But the fact that you have these four anti-Semitic narratives that you do not find with other ethnic or racial groups or religious groups made anti-Semitism so pernicious, so pervasive, and so dangerous. I also struggle sometimes just to comprehend how they can be placed together. Um, with There are so many contradictions and paradoxes. So, for instance, in the course that I teach that I mentioned to you, um, looking one of the primary sources is um, is Hitler's Mein Kampf and also Wilhelm Marn's 1879 piece. And, you know, at the same time, they're, they're saying exactly what you just outlined, you know, responsible for communism, responsible for capitalism, um, inferior, yet potentially going to take take over, you know, the, and it, it's like their supporters don't see these contradictions or, or don't care, or it's, it's just uh, noise and, and also just so much hatred as well. But something that is, is quite central to your argument is the um, issue of immigration. And that is from uh, usually Eastern Europe, Jews from Eastern Europe. And because that um, is also seen negatively sometimes by uh, Western European Jews, for instance, who are perhaps a Sephardic background, who are assimilated, who, who have done very well in 19th century because of, let's say, this modernist turn, but also, you know, in certain areas like law and medicine and, you know, high-reaching high uh, kind of jobs. And then you have, because of um, pogroms in Russia, for instance, or the Tsarist Empire, because of various other um, anti-Semitic movements and targeting of Jewish communities, you have huge amount of immigration, mainly to, to the United States, but also to, to Germany and France and Britain and elsewhere. And, and what, what does this do for 
relations. You know, you, you mentioned about uh, religious and racial manifestations of anti-Semitism, but presumably, and you, talk, you mentioned uh, how anti Judaism is, is seen by some of these Enlightenment thinkers as being, you know, this kind of fossilized religion. But this doesn't seem to usually apply to, to these very uh, simulated um, Jews already in situ in, in uh, European countries. But then suddenly there is an increase in, in people coming from Eastern Europe, these so-called Ashkenazi uh, people. And, and so what, do, what does that do for um, anti-Semites and, and also for the Jewish communities already there? I'm delighted you brought up this issue of immigration because what I want people to take away from my work is that the tropes by themselves cannot sufficiently explain levels of variation in anti-Semitism. You need triggers. So the story is really about tropes and triggers. Immigration flows uh, constituted one of the key triggers to ignite these tropes. And so... I use, I look at immigration, I look at economic um, uh, malaise in terms of the uh, almost every 10 years it seemed there was a recession or depression and that would ignite the economic argument against the Jews. And then there was the left and the fact the rise of the political left and the fact that we're in countries and at times when you could identify the leadership of the left with Jews which you could do in some countries, let's say um, Romania, but you couldn't in Italy or Bulgaria, for example, that these are triggers that would ignite those narratives. So when it came to immigration, starting with the pogroms in 1881 from Russia, um, you get this mass flow of a very different kind of Jew that Western Europeans and Americans had been used to, because as you mentioned, Jews who had been living in Europe, most of them being Sephardic, many of them being Sephardic, um, were very assimilated. They spoke the languages. They had, uh, uh, you know, adapted to the, the their environment. But these Jews who came from um, Eastern Europe and from Russia, starting in 1881, were basically less educated. Uh, they didn't speak. They spoke Yiddish. Uh, they didn't. They came in such large numbers that. They took a longer time learning the languages of the Europe, West European countries. They were seen as those who would compete for low-level jobs, just as we see today in the United States with respect to the fear of um, Latin American or Central American migrants taking jobs in the United States. Um, so they were seen as a threat with that. And then particularly after the Bolshevik Revolution, they were seen as carrying the so-called Bolshevik virus that would lead to the upheaval and the overthrow of the uh, democratic capitalist uh, governments. So um, immigration plays a key role as a trigger here. And um, we see that to the extent that these immigrants uh, would either settle or pass through would ignite these um, fears of this Jewish influx and would bring up the, the you know the kind of uh, the re the religious argument against the Jews because they tended to be more orthodox the ones who were coming from Eastern Europe the racial because they looked different um, the economic for competition and the political because of the uh, potential to carry the Bolshevik virus 
But you mentioned immigration, and let's not lose sight of the fact that how that's being used today in the United States and in Europe. I mean, who is being accused of the so-called great replacement theory? When the anti-Semites were marching in Charlottesville, the ultra-right march in 2017, and they kept yelling, the Jews will not replace us. What were they talking about? I live in Pittsburgh. The murderer who killed 11 at the Tree of Life synagogue here in 2018, when they asked him why he did this, he said it's because the Jews, and particularly George Soros and others, are responsible for the great immigration because what they're trying to do is dilute the white Christian race in these countries. And we're seeing that where you are in Europe, how that's being used in terms of who's responsible for this uh, upsurge in immigration and refugees seeking asylum. And the Jews are being blamed by many for this. Yeah, I think this analogy of triggers and tropes is excellent. And it, it kind of brings to mind, let's say, in more contemporary understandings of the far right and the rise of the far right, these political opportunity structures, you know, that there are just certain times, let's say, um, the reaction to Salman Rushdie's uh, book in the early 1990s that, you know, that it, it's an opportunity to put forward certain views that um, that can take hold. And also it emphasizes the difference between perception and reality that, you know, when your book contains a lot of very informative graphs and, you know, we're, we're talking about immigration here from uh, Russian, the old Russian empire, Austro-Hungarian empire, um, West and in reality, the numbers are tiny. You know that you're looking at, at these graphs show the kind of historical um, percentage of Jews in uh, different countries, and it remains under are, are about one percent. So it doesn't go up that much at all. Even though, because you know, most people are going to North America and places like that. But but yet, this perception that this is taking that people are taking over that there's going to be this replacement, that they're they're going to compete for jobs, that their religion is, is threatening them. All, all these things seems to be very much um, at, at the forefront of these debates. And just this kind of also brings up uh, something that you've worked on more recently and that you've touched on already in our discussion is the left and anti-Semitism. You know, in your book, you mentioned Karl Marx and, and some of his views and, and how they... Um, were, were tropes as well, um, and Wilhelm Marr was linked to, to kind of socialism in, in the 1870s, and you have Jean Jaurès and others. But for you, even talk about Zola, you know, who is you know a great defender of Dreyfus in the the affair, but also some some of his other work, you know, repeats a lot of these tropes that are that are out there, and that's kind of the context, you know, that 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 had become normal. In a sense, so these people who are sometimes uh, seem to be linked uh, to to Judaism, like Marx, for instance, even though his his father had converted, um, are like uh, Zola, who who you know famously pens this Shakuse, um, that they also repeat some of these these tropes and, and these allegations as well. Well, it was interesting the way I came upon this when I was doing the Roots of Hate. And I saw that the left begins to abandon anti-Semitism as a key plank um, in the 1890s. But it doesn't happen in England. It's that 
whereas the left, where the right seems to usurp the anti-Semitic tropes um, in the latter part of the 19th century in continental Europe, in Great Britain, it was the left really continues to play up uh, anti-Semitism, particularly looking at the editions of The Justice, the leading social democratic paper. And particularly this is during the Boer War and in the aftermath of that leading up to World War I. So I thought, I want to look at this question of anti-Semitism of the left because so much was being put out there, the so-called new left anti-Semitism. And I scratched my head and I said, how new is this? And so that's why I went back into the study and the book that I uh, published in, with Cambridge in 2015 called Socialism of Fools with a question mark, the leftist origins of modern anti-Semitism allows me to trace that in France, in Germany, in Great Britain. And what I found is that the left early on um, uh, moves towards three major tropes against the Jews. One being the religion is anti-progressive, it's fossilized, and we see that coming out of uh, the Enlightenment, Voltaire, Diderot, others. That's picked up by uh, Marx, Hegel, Fourier, Proudhon, the early French socialist. Then we get the argument that Jews are excessively materialist and greedy and responsible for the ills of capitalism. And this develops pretty early on in the 19th century, again, in, in France, England, and as well as in Germany during this process of modernization. And then the left's argument against the Jews of being exclusivist, that the Jews have this sense that they are these chosen people, they're the, the elect, and that they're unwilling to break out of their mold, out of their small communities. And I remember reading uh, the writings of Proudhon in the mid-19th uh, century when he argues, they won't sit down at my table and break bread with me and drink my wine. Why won't they accept Sunday as the day of, you know, of the Sabbath? Why do they hold to Saturday? So the fact that the Jews left was saying, how can they become the modern citizens, uh, uh, particularly in the aftermath of the French Revolution, if they don't give up these old exclusivist ways of behaving and thinking? So these three different narratives were used and by the left, and they would eventually be usurped by the right. So the left has a certain role here. And we see again in the current time how Israel is fitting into this exclusivist role, how the so-called criticism of Jews as um, being a state within a state or a nation apart, and how that is used in terms of Jewish dual loyalty, that Jews in America and Europe uh, are both loyal to the U.S., but more loyal to, let's say, Israel. So the Israeli issue in Palestine plays key role in here. Jews, particularly in terms of their in their control of the media and the banking industry and world's commerce fits into the um, excessive materialist one. And again, the Jewish religion. I mean, the left has criticized, let's say, the Israeli government for some of its policies because it, they say it, the, the government is uh, Jews going back to the time of uh, the Old Testament were used the most violent means to subject subjugate their their enemies. So these arguments have come back now, uh, particularly among some sections of the left. So in, in, in doing that work, I wanted to say that the left 
you know, they, they, they're not totally innocent here going back 200, 250 years. Yeah, well, even in this podcast series and, and the, the course that, that's linked to this series, you know, the, the left is very prominent. You know, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording about some of the episodes we have about uh, anti-Chinese movements in Australia and the United States. To the forefront are these leftist movements, you know, that are targeting these uh, these groups. And we see it continually, especially in the second half of the 19th century, but early 20th century, the uni trade union movement in the United States is also very hostile towards Southern and Eastern Europeans coming in. Yeah, just one key point here for a takeaway from the, the work I did on the socialism of fools. Historically for the left, when the Jews are seen as victims or the oppressed, the left has supported them. Particularly, we see this with respect to the pogroms uh, we see during the time of the Holocaust. When Jews are perceived as victimizers or oppressors, i.e. so-called what's going on with is, you know, the role that Israel plays off Palestine, the left sees the Jews in a negative light. So the perception of oppressed, oppressor is key in understanding the historic position that the left has taken towards anti-Semitism. Okay. That's a really interesting point, I think, that uh, a lot of people will, will uh, dwell on, I, I think, and, and find fascinating. Um, a lot of our discussion has focused on so-called demand side factors. So, you know, economic crises, although we didn't touch on them that much, you know, that they are key to your arguments, you know, and, and downturns do, uh, and this is, you know, been proven by, I think a lot of authors lead to a growth in anti-Semitism and, and nativism and xenophobia, for instance. Um, and we talked about Jewish immigration um, being a, a significant factor. But how salient were supply-side factors in explaining these differences and similarities that you identify between Germany and Great Britain and Italy and Romania and France. So, you know, how significant was political agency? Well, certainly, you know, you take the case of Germany, where, you know, we're able to show with the data that pre-1933, um, Germany is indistinguishable in many ways in terms of anti-Semitic acts and anti-Semitic attitudes as we measure them from, let's say, France, from Great Britain to a large extent. But the fact that in 1933, with Hitler's ascent to power and the ability then to place anti-Semitism as at the forefront of his political agenda and to blame um, the Jews for the problem, the loss of uh, in World War One, uh, for the economic uh, collapse in 1922-23. But when you have a power, position of power and you have control over the media and that uh, you have a coercive ability as well, then you're able to have a pronounced effect on the you know, rise of anti-Semitic sentiments and, and, and acts. Because when you have a, a, you know, whether it was in Romania uh, in the late 1930s when uh, an anti-Semitic uh, government comes to power, or it's Germany certainly under Hitler, when you have control of the police and 
crimes are now being committed uh, or acts against Jews uh, that may be violent and the police will look the other way because the government is telling them, you know, that's okay. Uh, Makes a big, big difference. But when you have a government where people are doing things that are criminal, let's say against Jews or anybody else, and they're going to be prosecuted, you're going to get fewer instances of uh, these types of acts. So yes, agency is important. And um, as we see in terms of the data, there's a tremendous, there's a qualitative change in terms of anti-Semitic acts and attitudes once uh, Hitler comes to power in Germany. Um, even Mussolini, when Mussolini by 1936, 37 makes his turn and the uh, manifesto of the racial scientists comes out, um, we see a change in terms of even within Italy, uh, where there had been greater tolerance even under Mussolini's fascist government throughout the 20s and early 1930s. So yes, political agency is very key here. Okay, finally, uh, William, you know, towards the end of your book, Roots of Hate, you you talk about how that, um, you know, contemporary anti-Semitism, although it's present and it's there and it's often uh, related to what's going on in Israel and Palestine, you say that um, you know the, the conditions aren't there that were there in the 1930s. Um, also, you know the Jewish population in Europe is so much smaller because of the Holocaust, because of immigration to Israel and elsewhere. Um, but it sounds like you know you, you mentioned uh, what what happened in Pittsburgh uh, in 2017. You know we talked to Ruth Wodak, who also mentioned this rise. And, and Lars Rensman, this rise of, of anti-Semitism today, and even you, you mentioned George Soros. Just recently, you know, uh, there's the brothers of Italy have come to power in Italy, and you know they also reference Soros. And there's a lot of a lot of anti-Semitism there that that mightn't be clear cut, but you know that that there are references there that um, you, you can see vestiges of it. So has your thinking on this changed um, since you, you've written Roots of Hate? Yes and no. Let's say, again, as you pointed out to me earlier, that this book was written or published in 2003. And when I looked into my so-called crystal ball, I looked out my window, it, it, the world looked a bit different with respect to anti-Semitism. The key thing, I, 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 and I mentioned this in the book, was that racial science had been debunked and that the Soviet Union had collapsed and that communism, in terms of Judeo-Bolshevism, the, the, the argument against the Jews, uh, they, they were no longer there. So I, I thought that the anti-Semitism uh, compared to earlier points of time were much lower. And indeed, they are as bad as things are today is that when you look back to the period pre-1939 and you see major newspapers, you see major political leaders, one after another, not ones who are on the fringes, but major political leaders, one after another, buying into the anti-Semitism and these arguments. Um, it, it's qualitatively different as than today, even as bad as things seem to be today when it comes to anti-Semitism. So we have to keep that in mind. But since I wrote the book, and particularly over the last 10 years, I see how religious, uh, the religious trope is back 
again, in, in ways. Uh, the so-called kosher slaughter of animals, the critique people have of that in Europe. Um, the Brit Milah, which is the non-medical circumcision. You see people arguing, why do Jewish people subject their young males to this? You see the economic in terms of the 2008-2009 Great Recession, the financial crisis then, and now with the pandemic, people are looking whom to blame for our economic misfortune. And many will turn to Wall Street or will turn to some of the wealthiest uh, families out there. And they will say, well, they're, even they say Rupert Murdoch, even though he's not Jewish, they thought you know, he's part of it. Greenspan, Murdoch, Soros, they're responsible for our economic uh, misfortune. You look at the political. And so whereas when, once it was Judeo-Bolshevism, now it's Judeo-Americanism that there is this America-Israel alliance that is trying to overthrow different types of governments and uh, create a world order based on Judeo-Americanism. So this we didn't see when I was writing the book, we see it more today. You see these neoconservatives uh, being seen as this new house of David. You know, when you read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, argument being that there's this cobble of cabal of, of uh, Jews who have met and they're see, seeking to create disorder throughout the world so they can seize power. So this argument that there, there are these neoconservative group responsible for that. And here they point to people in the American government. It would be William Crystal, Elliot Abrams, Douglas Fife, uh, Lewis Scooter Libby, uh, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolferitz, all of these people have prominent roles during the George W. Bush administration, advising him in going into Iraq. And so the arguments began to develop that, aha, this neoconservative group trying to recreate this House of David. And then you get these triggers today, the immigration, and the so-called Great Replacement, uh, igniting these uh, tropes again. You get the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Every time there's an uh, Israel and Gaza uh, go at it, you see an, an upsurge. And so there are these, again, I point to the, the, the tropes that I thought were dissipating to a certain extent have reemerged to some extent today, and there are triggers out there. So yes, if I wrote that book today, I would have a different conclusion than I did in 2003. But again, the major point is that as bad as things are today, they cannot compare to what it was like between 1879 and 1939 in terms of the apathy and the indifference of the world, particularly the Western world, to the fate of Jews. Okay, William, I think that's an excellent note to end on. Uh, I thank you so much for uh, agreeing to participate in this series and for answering your questions so wonderfully and so insightfully. Thanks very much. Ariel, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media. And if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhub.ie.